Let's pray together for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that across the centuries it speaks to us. And I pray that we would hear uh, your voice speaking to, into our lives. I pray, Lord, that you'd, sport, you'd speak to me this morning, even as I speak uh, to the congregation here. Father, we thank you for our continent of Europe, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live out our calling in this day here in Britain and across Europe. We ask it in your name. Amen. What does it feel like when what God is doing in your life doesn't make sense? It can be confusing. It can be disorienting. It can even be frightening. The story of Esther has quite a lot to say about all of that. But the book of Esther is quite a challenge for preachers because it's the least theological book in the whole Bible. Quite literally so, there is not a single mention of God. And although the events that it refers to uh, took place after the decree that Cyrus gave that allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem from exile, there is no mention of Jerusalem or of the temple. There is fasting but no prayer, no visions or prophecies, no concern for the law, and not a single miracle. So what are you going to preach about then? Martin Luther considered the book to be, and I quote, full of pagan naughtiness and wished that it didn't exist at all. Now, before you go looking for pagan naughtiness, okay, uh, there's a few things I want to say. The book of Esther has a crucial message for anyone this morning who is struggling to understand what God is doing whether that's in your personal life or in Britain or in Europe or anywhere around the world. Esther gives us an answer to this question. How should God's people respond when he is silent or when what God, what God is doing doesn't seem to make sense? So first of all, let's just set the book in its historical context. The Jews of Judah and Jerusalem had been carried off into exile by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. The temple and the city walls were destroyed, and for 70 years, God's people lived in exile in Babylon until God used another foreign king, the Persian king Cyrus, to bring an end to the Babylonian empire. Cyrus allowed some of the uh, Jewish people to return, but many of them stayed in Persia. And the book of Esther concerns a group of these who stayed behind 50 or 60 years after the decree of Cyrus. They were still living in Persia, but now under the rule of Cyrus's grandson, Xerxes. Now, as soon as Xerxes ascended to the throne, he sought to secure his empire. He crushed rebellions in Egypt and in Babylon, and soon afterwards began calling himself the King of Kings. Even then, though, his empire wasn't big enough, so he thought, I know, I'll invade Greece. Has anybody seen the film 300? Okay, that film is based on the story of the Battle of Thermopylae, where 300 Spartans held off, who? King Xerxes and his Persian horde for three days before they were finally defeated. Persia was in very, very much the superpower of the day, and the events in the book of Esther take place in Susa, in modern-day Iraq, where the king had his court. So reading Esther is a bit like 
watching The West Wing or House of Cards, okay? Ever watched any of those? But two and a half thousand years ago, okay? It's set in that strange uh, environment of being the center of what, got, what is going on in the world, in the world superpower of the time. So here we go. Book of Esther, because probably you've never heard a sermon on the Book of Esther. If you have, it was probably in Sunday school. In three minutes. Okay. King Xerxes calls together all the movers and shakers across his enormous empire where he wants to make a point of showing off all of his wealth. This ends with a gathering with a huge banquet that lasts for seven days. At the end, he calls for his beautiful queen Vashti to come in and display her before everybody. But Vashti refuses. The king feels humiliated in front of all his guests and he completely loses it. Banishes the the queen from his presence and under advice of his legal experts, writes a new law to make sure that all the women show respect to their husbands. Now, we don't know how that worked out, but we can sort of guess. Anyway, once Xerxes calms down, he makes plans to find a new queen. So he gets all the most beautiful virgin girls from across the empire, and they're brought to Susa and subjected to a year-long, tre- uh, year-long series of beauty treatments before they are presented on what we might call the Xerxes factor. In Susa, there's, there's a very beautiful Jew, sorry, there's a, a Jew by the name of Mordecai who has a cousin whose parents have died and he's raised up this girl, Esther, as his own daughter. Mordecai thinks, well, maybe she could enter into this competition, but for that she's going to have to hide her Jewish identity. So she, she goes in. After a year of beauty school, Esther's turn it comes to go to the casting Xerxes likes her more than all the other girls, presses his golden button and proclaims her queen. Yay! Everybody's happy. Well, no, because Mordecai discovers a plot to kill the king, shortly afterwards shows disrespect to one of the king's rising stars, a guy called Haman, and he's so incensed he determines to kill not only Mordecai, but all of his people, the Jews across the whole of the kingdom. He tells the king that if the Jews, that the Jews are a threat and offers a fortune to sweeten the deal if he will agree to their extermination. King Xerxes is convinced. A decree is issued that all the Jews will be killed in one year and one day's time. Mordecai, of course, is devastated at that news, goes about in sackcloth and ashes, until word of it comes to Esther. Esther calls a three-day fast before she puts her life on the line, presenting herself unannounced before the king. Xerxes receives her, asks what she wants, even up to half the kingdom, she asks the king and Haman to attend a banquet that she's prepared where she'll tell him what she wants. This is Esther's wannabe moment. You know the Spice Girls song? You know, I'll tell you what I want, what I really want. Well, tell me what you want, what you really want. I'll tell you what I want, what I really want. Anyway, the king, uh, the king says, well, what do you want? She says, well, I'll tell you tomorrow. Haman's initially delighted to dine with the king and the queen, But he then sees Mordecai and becomes very angry and calls for a huge gallows to be built to hang Mordecai on it. That night, the king can't sleep. He asks for the chroniclers of the reign to read him the story of uh, recent history. And there he reads about Mordecai's role in uncovering the plot against the king's life. He takes advice from Haman on how to honor the one in whom the king delights. Thinking the king's referring to him, Haman suggests, well, what about a mounted procession on a, on a dressed like a king on a, on a, a huge um, uh, horse? And in fact, he then turns around and does that to Mordecai. Haman is humiliated, 
but nevertheless is taken along to Esther's banquet. And the king finally does say, well, what do you really, really want? And she says, well, I want my people to be safe. She reveals Haman's plan. Xerxes is incensed. Haman is killed. He's hung from the very gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Mordecai is placed over all of Haman's estate. And Esther begs the king to send out a new decree so that all the Jews are given freedom from this edict. And on the very day that they were due to be destroyed, the tables are turned, the Jews destroy their enemies and celebrate with a great feast, which is then remembered every day, every year, by the Jews to this day as the feast festival of Purim. That's the book of Esther. Okay? Okay. But we're going to focus in this morning on chapter 4, the reading we had before. At the beginning of chapter 4, we find Mordecai in a desperate state, the Jews facing almost certain destruction, and he's powerless to do anything about it. He grieves, but he does so in a very public way, weeping and wailing around the streets everywhere except the royal palace where such was forbidden. Now, whether or not Esther's servants knew of the family relationship with Mordecai, they knew enough to know that she would be concerned for him. When she learned uh, that he was dressed in sackcloth, initially she sends clothes for him to be uh, dressed in. But Esther then sends a servant when he refuses to find out what's really going on. She returns, sorry, the servant returns with a written form of the edict and the plea from Mordecai that she plea for mercy before the king on behalf of all of her people. Esther is in an unenviable position. She knows that unless the king extends his scepter to her, she can expect the death penalty if she enters the king's penalty, sorry, the king's presence, unannounced, uninvited. She's been married for something like five years. Xerxes would have had many other wives, and it's been a month since the last time that she was called for. She can't be sure of her influence over the king anymore. And moreover, to plead for mercy for the Jews would reveal herself as a Jew. All this time, she's been Queen Hadassah, not Queen Esther. But it's on Mordecai's response that I would really want to concentrate this morning. For it not only provided guidance to Esther, it provides guidance too to us. So I'm just going to read that again at the end of chapter 4. Mordecai sent back this answer, verse 13. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. First principle that I think we could take out of this chapter. Crises have a way of showing who we truly are. Who was this woman? Was she Esther or was she Hadassah? She has to decide who is she really? Is she a pagan queen or is she a daughter of Israel? And that's a question all of us have to answer at some point, not am I a queen, but who am I really? While things are going along smoothly, we can hide who we are. 
We can pretend to be someone else, as Esther did. But when we're in a crisis, when we're put to the test, our true identity is revealed. For the last millennia or so, Europe has been known as the Christian continent. In the last uh, 100 years, it's been massively secularized. But a recent Pew Research Center study found that across 15 Western European countries, many of those that you saw in the EU in the red, found that a striking 71% of those still consider or still call themselves Christians. So what's the point of mission agencies like ECM, who I work with, European Christian Mission? Why do we need mission agencies like ours if 71% of Europeans are still Christian? Well, of course, the vast majority of those are Christians in name only. If identifying as a Christian meant potentially suffering persecution or even death, as was the case for Esther and is still the case in many parts of the world today, I'm sure those statistics would look very different. So I want to start by asking a very straightforward question to all of you this morning. Are you a Christian? Have you truly decided to follow Jesus, even if that was to ask you to pay the ultimate price? As we remember those who gave their lives in the First World War 100 years ago, this week. We're challenged, I'm challenged anyway, would I be willing to pay the ultimate price, not only in the defense of my country, but in holding firm to my Christian faith and values if that was at threat of death? The story of Esther challenges each and every one of us to make a decision. Who am I, really? Second thing, is that our lives are shaped by the decisions that we make in those moments of crisis or what we might call destiny moments. My wife Christine and I went on a course uh, three or four years ago now, which ECM runs for its missionaries who are in a period of transition. Before we arrived on this, uh, for this week-long course, we had to write a 10-page autobiography. Um, I got 10 pages in, and I, you know, I, I was still in my adolescence. You know, I, was <laughs> I enjoyed writing in all the details. And Christine had finished by eight pages. That says something about the two of us, I think. Not that my life is more full than hers, rather that I just like talking about myself. Anyway, before we arrived, we had to do that. And in, in writing it, we had to underline those chapters in our life, those incidents that had been critical incidents or destiny moments in our lives. Those moments when you can see that your life took a turn one way or another. If you, if you went this direction, uh, it w- your life would have turned out like this. But if you'd chosen differently, it would have been very different. I think all of us, if you think back over your life, you can think of moments like that, where if you'd not got on that plane, <laughs> your life would have been very different or whatever. Sometimes it's a decision that we control, but often it's a decision about how we react to a situation that is beyond our control, as it was with Esther. This was Esther's destiny moment, to speak or to remain silent. There isn't any middle way. Speak, and she faces the possibility of death at the hands of the king. 
but also the possibility that God would use her to save her people, remain silent, and she would surely see her people die, and sooner or later she would go too. Esther's life and our lives are shaped by the decisions we make in those moments. And I'm sure each of us can identify several of those through our lives. Some were good decisions and some perhaps not so good. But here's the thing. God has a way of using even the wrong decisions from our perspective, the bad decisions, and working them for good. I love that verse at the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph speaks to his brothers about what's happened. They're fearful of, of, of him taking reprisals against them, and he says, no, what you wanted for evil, God has turned it for good. Look at what Mordecai says in verse 14. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Mordecai knows the stories of how God has delivered Israel in the past. He's done it through all sorts of different people in all sorts of ways. And despite his grief, he's sure that it will happen somehow. But Esther has a chance to be that person, the person that God uses to deliver his people. This is her moment. And he puts, as he puts it in verse 15, who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. So if you find yourself thinking this week about those destiny moments, how they brought you here to Oxford for such a time as this, determine to make a difference for God where you are. Who knows that God has put you in your family for such a time as this, in your workplace for such a time as this, in this project for such a time as this, in this church for such a time as this. I'd encourage you even to write that phrase out and stick it somewhere in that place that immediately comes to mind somewhere that will remind you that God has put you there with a purpose. And lastly, the third principle. And if in many ways, this is the, the most challenging. The third principle is this. God doesn't always reveal what he's up to. As I said in my introduction, Esther's the least theological book in the Bible because there's not a single reference to God. Even in passages like this one, where it seems, you know, Mordecai surely is going to mention God now. It would be so much easier if he mentioned God, but he doesn't. Is it that somehow Mordecai and Esther's Jewish faith has been so debilitated by their exile in a pagan country, they've all become theists who believe in some sort of spiritual reality, but not a personal God like Yahweh? No! It's that the writer of Esther is deliberately excluding the name of God, because that's what it feels like when we're in the midst of this sort of situation. What do we ask ourselves when we're in a crisis? Where is God in this? Don't we? What is God doing? Mordecai's faith is to be admired, but he didn't really know what God was up to, or if Esther was to be the one to save his people. 
And it's precisely why, that faith, why we should admire him, because he didn't know what God was doing, but he still trusted. What is God doing in Europe right now? Well, we look at the scene and we see all sorts of things, uncontrolled migration, resurgent nationalism and independence movements, youth unemployment at terrible levels in some countries, rising national and personal levels of debt, churches being closed, mosques being opened, Christian values under pressure. Where is God in the midst of all that? What's he doing? Well, as I said, if you want to know a bit more about that, you need to come along this evening. Okay? But here's a hint. A few months ago, I was preaching at a missionary retreat, and the text I was given included this, this verse from Isaiah 28, 21. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. The story that Isaiah is referring to here was a great battle when the Lord broke through the enemy's lines and he revealed himself as Baal Perazim, the God who breaks through. But now, Isaiah says, God is going to rise up and use a foreign king to fight his own people, to do a strange work that they would not understand. And that sometimes is our experience too, isn't it? It seems like God is almost fighting against us, or so it would appear. What is he doing? It's so strange. It's beyond our understanding. The book of Esther reminds us to trust in God even when he appears to be absent or is apparently working against us. To remember, as Mordecai did, that God always comes through for his people. So in those moments when God appears absent, We need to remember God's faithfulness in the past, to remember the stories of Scripture, to remember the promises, remember his faithfulness in our lives, but also through history. Just like the book of Esther is just one life story in the bigger story of God's plan and purpose for us all, God invites us into his story And that story shapes and guides our lives, not the other way around. Sometimes we talk about, I invited Jesus into my life. Much more important is to understand that he has invited us into his story. We are part of a bigger story. Our destiny, our identity, and our sense of meaning doesn't come from us. It comes from him. So Esther turns out to be more of a theological book than we think. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you. Well, there may be people here this morning who are going through terrible situations in their lives, in their families, in their work, in other areas facing situations that they don't understand and are struggling to understand what you're doing. Lord, I pray for them this morning particularly, that you would comfort them, you'd draw near to them, and you'd help them to hold on to your promises and to your faithfulness. 
Lord, as a, as a church, I pray for this church that it would be faithful too. You have put Magdalen Road Church here in this part of Oxford for such a time as this. Lord, may it be faithful too to your calling to be a, a people where your word is preached, where the love of God is evident in all that uh, is done here. I pray, Lord, that you'd use it at this time for your glory. And Lord, as a country and as a continent, we pray for Europe. And I pray, Lord, that in the midst of all the chaos and the things that are out of our control, we might show ourselves to be a people of faith. That your church across Europe, the hundreds and thousands of, uh, of churches that there are, that even gathered this morning, Lord, that we might be points of light. We might be signs that point to you. We might be people that that are uh, faithful Jesus followers, not just people that bear your name, but ultimately, Lord, are not following you. So, Lord, we, we take inspiration from this life story. We thank you, Lord, for Esther's faith and for her willingness to take risks for you. May we be faithful Jesus followers. May we be those who are willing to take risks for you this week. Remembering, Lord, that it is for such a time at this that we are on the earth and we bear your name. Amen.